Matt Lewis, so excited to have you a part of the podcast, The Scuttlebutt, uh, today. Um, you are the author of Mission Transition. Uh, you also have an extensive military background. I'd, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Welcome to the program. John, thank you so much for having me. It's my great pleasure to be here and uh, to share our message today with your listening audience. So uh, I come from Greater Cincinnati is where I lived, a, a, a bit far afield from Pittsburgh, but have been there many times and looking forward to participating in the Veterans Breakfast Club as my, I make my way up there. Uh, if I were just kind of summarize who I am at a, a high level, I'm I'm a father uh, to three boys, uh, the oldest of whom is a, a plebe at West Point, so the military tradition mm -hmm. continues. I'm a retired veteran, mm -hmm. proud retired veteran, and we'll we'll get into more of that, and uh, an award-winning and best-selling author. Uh, by way of, well, somewhat purpose, but somewhat luck as well. Uh, a, a real focus, I'll add in that regard, and we'll get into this as well, on eliminating the civil civil military divide. That's kind of been my life's passion and, and purpose that I've uh, pivoted to in recent years. Um, and so you come from a military family, or did you establish that? I, there's really no uh, longstanding tradition in my family, per se. Uh, I was the first graduate of my high school to graduate from West Point back in the day, 1991, uh, proud member of that class. Uh, but no, I, I had an uncle or two that may have served just you know, a couple years, Navy, Army, what have you, but mm -hmm. certainly no longstanding tradition. Um, the, the reason for that, and maybe this begs the question, so why did you do it? Uh, for me, the the answer is, has a couple of elements. Uh, one, I was you know, sufficiently smart enough in high school that I could qualify for service academies. Uh, two, my family background is very blue collar in nature. Uh, my uh, father was a, a fireman and had two, three, four other jobs at one point in time just to keep food on the table for six kids. Oh, man. Uh, my, my mom, stay-at-home homemaker, uh, and a very good one and proud one at that. Uh, but long story short, I, me being the oldest, there there wasn't a lot of cash to go around to to pay for college, so that was another element. And uh, I guess the final element was I back in the day was a sufficiently good athlete that I was being looked at from a football uh, recruiting standpoint by the service academies and and some others as well. Uh, but that's ultimately what ended up being there. I, I did not start with any grand vision to a, a long career. For me, it was a bit of a means to an end to secure a you know Ivy League caliber education, guaranteed employment, as we'd like to say, upon graduation, and uh, you know a, a start on life where I could be independent on my own. Uh, those were the appealing things for me as a seventeen-year-old. Which uh, you said six six kids. So you have five siblings. Which were you in the in the order? I'm the oldest. Uh, oh. Oldest three were boys, then two girls and a brother. Uh, my uh, not next youngest brother, but the one after that also uh, went to West Point uh, three years behind me. Uh, he ended up marrying one of his classmates there. Oh, wow. Um, so that sort of set you up. I mean, usually the oldest is the one that's sort of the take charge type. Uh, did you feel like that sort of helped set you up for military life? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot written around birth or roles, and at least in my family growing up, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, so, and a, a bit of a paternalistic family as well. So I, I fall into those stereotypes and just kind of my general approach to things. 
I saw it not only doing all of those things for myself, also alleviating a bit of a burden on the rest of the family. Mm -hmm. uh, I have no doubt my brother, who also went to service academy, uh, probably pondered similar thoughts. Uh, but, you know, when all was said and done, all uh, six of us ended up graduating from college. And uh, most of us I have to think just about all of us, I think, graduate schools now. I can imagine your parents were very proud. I mean, they work hard, but like everybody, you know, was successful. Everybody pushed on, went to college, you know, all of that. Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. Mom's still around. Uh, Dad passed about a decade ago. Uh, so he never got to see the genesis of everything we're talking about today, but uh, just knowing him, I know he'd be proud. And why did you choose Army? Uh, again, I'll go back to those originating thoughts I had as as a 17-year-old. Uh, I did receive a, a nomination and an appointment to Annapolis as well. Mm -hmm. And frankly, this is going to sound terribly shallow. But at that point in time, again, I was a, a football recruit for both institutions, <clears throat> excuse me, and Army had the better team in that day and age. So uh, <laughs> that, I, I like to say that that's what it was. But I also try to think downward a little bit in terms of after graduation, what would I actually be doing? Would I prefer to be spending time on on the water or, or doing you know those sorts of missions or something on land? And that also swung the, the decision a little bit. So you were happy that Army recently run on the the uh, annual Army Navy game? Well, it, it was a classic, uh, a bit of an ugly game uh, from my standpoint. Had a good outcome, but you, you know it's one of these longstanding rivalries. Uh, we haven't quite righted the ship in terms of evening the the win loss record. Uh, we had well over a decade of of losses there. I, I won't belabor the point, but mm -hmm. we still have some catching up to do. So, hey, a win's a win, though. That's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Uh, so, so take me a bit into into your army career. Uh, you know, uh, you started in the early '90s. Were you deployed early? Uh, you know, what was your path? What was your? Uh, how did you envision your career through the military? So, I, I commissioned uh, out of West Point as an armor officer. Uh, so, think tanks uh, for for those that aren't familiar. Um, started out on the MC. It was a it was an adv advantageous time to come into the armor force because I had experience on a number of different platforms. For the armor geeks out there, I started out off on 68.3s. I went to M1, M1IP, uh, M1A1, M1A1 Heavy. By the time I got out uh, from active duty at the five-year mark, I was helping them design the M1A2, which is pretty much the, the platform everybody uses today. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I got experience on on all of those. And it was a neat thing to do. I was stationed uh, primarily at Fort Knox, the old 194 separate armor brigade, uh, 233 armor, uh, again, for those of you that, that follow all of the units, uh, but it rose through the ranks, kind of a, a standard succession in an armor battalion, uh, was a tank platoon leader, uh, went from there to as a scout platoon leader, there's one of those in armor battalion, uh, then went to a company executive officer, uh, and then served on uh, regimental staff uh, for a year. And then that's about where I ended up leaving active duty to pursue graduate school, kind of uh, transition to the real world. Uh, and which transition is certainly one of the highlights of, of you coming onto the scuttlebutt today. So uh, what year did you transition out and what did what complications did you come across as you were making that switch? 
Well, I, I'm no different than any other veteran of of my age and uh, vintage, if you will, w when we left the service. I left active duty in 96 to answer your question. At that point in time, um, the Army specifically had a program called Army Career Alumni Program, ACAP. It was in its infancy. It Is was that what, sorry to interrupt, is that what became TAP, like Transition Assistance Program? Yeah, it's kind of, today it exists as kind of this umbrella uh, okay. program, Soldier for Life TAP, and the Army, and it has its different permutations than the other services. Gotcha. Uh, but, but by and large, nearly identical curriculum. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it had just started. It was literally administered in your last five days on active duty where, you know, wow. you're, you're trying to clear post and do millions of other things. Um, and by the way, it was also administered by people that had just walked out the door <laughs> probably within the past year themselves. So it was a bit of a blind leading the blind. Mm -hmm. uh, combine those two things. There wasn't a whole lot that, that I got out of it. So again, myself, like every other veteran in my generation was kind of left to fend for themselves to figure it out. For me, that took the form of doing a lot of reading, uh, a lot of outreach to those that had come before me, just picking their brains. So how does this work? What's next? Mm -hmm. uh, a, a book that really helped me at the time was uh, Dick Bowles' What Color Is Your Parachute? And uh, ever grateful for him and the flower exercise and uh, all of the processes within his book. And when I fast forward, you know, 20 some odd years later, when I sat down to, to write mine, that's kind of the a bit of a vision I had in the back of my head is to create something similar, but more specific to the veteran population. Uh, so long story short, um, you know, I, I figured it out. Uh, it worked okay for me. I used graduate school as my transition vehicle. Uh, it di uh, discovered that, uh, you know, for me to be successful in the real world and in the career field that I wanted to, to pursue, I knew that I needed to upskill. Uh, I wasn't gonna be able to jump straight into that. And I also recognized at that point in my life, um, as immature as I, I would have been, I was mature enough to recognize that I've spent my entire adult life in a uniform of some sort, and I probably need a little bit of time to decompress, deprogram, call it what you will. So I saw graduate school, again, as a, an opportunity to, to have some dedicated time to rub elbows with those that have been living and working in the real world, and just pick their brains and understand how it works, uh, how the, I, I wasn't calling it cultural on cultural dimensions at the time, but that's yeah. kind of what I was trying to experience and, and get to the core on. Uh, so for me, it, it was helpful. And uh, not that, and I'm a big proponent for making schooling or graduate schooling a, a transition vehicle, but it's not for everyone. Uh, there, there's tons of vehicles people can choose, uh, but it, it, it certainly worked for me. And once I got on the other side of that uh, and, and ultimately landed in various corporate gigs, we can talk about, um, you know, I, I felt because there, again, really was nothing on the other side just to kind of reach out and help my peers that were about to go through a similar situation. And that's kind of really where it started. And over the years, yeah. um, not to fast forward too much into the book or anything, but it, typically I reach back and just coach on a one-on-one -on -one basis individuals through this process, I, I'll call it for lack of a better word at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, they tended to meet with success. And they were very grateful. I, they always came back, you know, with a, a message of gratitude over the years, though, as this thing started to 
expand and grow and get a, a little bit better, I'd have lessons learned from various experiences working with individuals. And uh, again, over the, literally a couple of decades improving upon this thing, eventually I started to get a piece of feedback, which is, hey, you really ought to think about scaling what you're doing because mm -hmm. there's literally hundreds of thousands of people leaving the service every year. Everyone could stand to benefit from this because uh, as much as DOL, DOD, VA, they're throwing money at TAP and related programs. Uh, veterans are still today service members left ending for themselves uh, when they leave the service. That's not to to say that uh, their efforts have been without merit, but there's still a ton more to do to get to where we need to be. And that's sort of just the thought I just had, because uh, what became TAP, and though TAP has maybe a, a lot more steps to take to really make the transition as smooth as possible for, for our servicemen and women, uh, can you speak a bit about, I mean, other than just like five days and then you're out from when you were you know, transitioning to now, where uh, we recently had a, a person on who's gone on through the TAP program, and, uh, and, and they, have, so they start a year prior. So a whole year prior, they start taking classes and those are all open and available. You can or you, you know, you can choose not to. But he was, you know, saying you need to do this. This is exactly what you need to do. You need to know what your plan is. You seem to be have been in a very unique position saying, like, I'm going to use grad school um, to, to, to make my transition easier. And not a lot of service men and women probably have that foresight to say, like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do it. Right. Uh, so specific to TAP, I'll, I'll speak to um, its evolution. Um, and then I'll, I'll, again, not to punch too many holes in it, but a, a thought or two about how they might continuously improve mm -hmm. what they have today. And, and I realize that all of this is uh, governed by budgetary issues, but I, I want to speak to to that and how I believe it's in the long-term interests uh, of DOD, VA, DOL uh, to, to make that investment. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, when I got out, TAP literally did not exist. Uh, it, it came... Uh, into its existence, I believe shortly thereafter. It's evolved since. Um, it, it At one point, and by the way, there's a, a white paper around veteran suicide on my uh, website that you can read that it contains all of these, these thoughts and ideas more than I'll even mention here. Uh, but again, it was very short window uh, towards the tail end of your, your ETS uh, when again, veterans are fending for themselves, their families, trying to get all of that straight and figure out whatever their next step is and all the moves and uh, geography, et cetera. It, it started out whereby, again, the, the, the veteran wasn't uh, being well served by the, the simple logistics involved mm -hmm. uh, in, in its administration. Over time, I, I like to think I'd have a uh, hand in that, but I certainly wasn't alone. There was pressure from any number of fronts. Uh, what has improved as of late, uh, it's now able to be administered, I believe it's 18 months actually, prior to ETS. They can take it multiple times. They can take it with their spouses. And I encourage all of that. If nothing else, I push for uh, as soon as you can begin to uh, expose yourself to its, its lessons, you should. Mm -hmm. I, I was just by the by, I saw yesterday that the Army Soldier for Life program is now enabling uh, professed retirees 24 months to begin the process prior to their ETS. So again, great you, step. What does that term professed retirees mean? Uh, whereby you've filed your paperwork okay. and, and have told the service 
I will retire on X date. Okay. And when that happens, they can begin to take advantage of those. Okay. And there, there's probably lots more detail that I'm not familiar with, but that was the headline I saw on social media yesterday. Yeah. So again, all good news, all good steps in the right direction. Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's still lots that can be done to to further improve it. Um, I, I know there's been discussion, but I don't think it's been implemented quite yet, whereby uh, they would segment the population getting out. Uh, those, say, that are of lesser tenure, those of longer tenure, uh, you could probably slice that another way being, uh, you know, enlisted officers. I, I, you can do it however you want. The point is you should bifurcate the audience and meet them where they need to be met in terms of the <laughs> curriculum that, that you're presenting. Uh, today, with very few exceptions, uh, Marine Corps has, uh, Marine for Life has a, uh, an executive level course for senior officers, just by way of one example. Um, it, it's largely today kind of a, a force-fed, um, you know, standard issue curriculum, if you will. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's certainly an opportunity. Um, uh, and there's, again, my white paper refers to um, all sorts of additional thoughts on, on how you can continue to improve it. A, a thought I wanted to inject with regard to this and what I would call the, the short-term thinking that's driving pressures to not uh, go forth. I recognize that uh, many of these things cost money. And one of the, I think this is a critical, if not a silver bullet kind of an idea. One of the pressures uh, that our, our service members feel today is in terms of not taking these things sooner than they are is because of, of the mission focused pressure <laughs> that that they have. And and I understand it. Uh, they're They're on the rolls of their unit. Their unit has a mission to fight and win the nation's wars. Got it. No argument here. But at some point, and we can debate and decide on what that time frame should be, call it six months, call it 90 days, what have you. There should be some period of time prior to the ETS where you're removed from those roles. And in, in essence, your, your assignment, your dedicated job is to figure out your next step. Mm -hmm. And if you take the individual off the roles, that enables that commander to backfill that slot so that they can remain mission ready while that individual again moves on and takes care of what they need to take care of. Mm -hmm. Now, again, you throw this idea at the Pentagon, they're going to shoot you down as, as a budgetary measure. And in the short term, I get it. Uh, you know, if I'm the, the CEO of the Pentagon, pardon the metaphor, uh, I'm going to allocate my limited capital to fighting na winning the nation's wars, not helping individuals matriculate from my organization. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, I, I understand the logic, but it's short-term logic. Think about it like this, from more of a long-term standpoint, if today's service members, soon to be veterans, don't find successful employment outcomes, today's recruits are not going to join. And, and isn't that exactly what we're seeing among the services, They've all of whom have not met their recent recruiting goals? The Army is actually calling it a crisis. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying this is the only reason for that. There's, there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, bad news that goes around and, you know, the... The, the parents of the individual looking to enlist, there's all kinds of bad news stories they can pick from to shout down their their kid and convince them not to to join the service, uh, right. where actually it's, it's an incredible opportunity. Well, can I, uh, so that's, can I add a thought to here that I just had is just seems like a very catch 22 in that in that idea or double edged sort of uh, if if we make it too easy to transition out, how many people are just going to sit take that that uh, opportunity and and jump ship from the military. And I could be wrong on that thought. 
I, I, I hear your point. I'm not sure it would fly that way. Uh, right. I mean, there, there's who the individual is going to sign their contract and, you know, they're contractually obligated for whatever that duration is. Mm -hmm. Um, or if you're coming out of a service academy, there's an activity service obligation and, right. and a reserve component to that as well. Mm -hmm. you know, you're you're not shortchanging that. It, mm -hmm. It's just making, you know, and you can certainly serve well beyond that as many do. Uh, but what it does for those that ultimately choose to exit at the end of whatever that obligation is, uh, one, it makes it easier for them and their families to find whatever that next chapter is in their life. Mm -hmm. And in, in doing so, it enables them to relate back more positively on, on their experience and be able to tell good stories, uh, not just about their time in service, but the way in which that service enabled them to successfully land in that, in that next chapter. True. You don't want anybody trying to advise the next the next group coming up to say, yeah, I mean, it's a great opportunity, but getting out is god awful. Like, <laughs> you don't want to. Yeah, you want to say like this whole experience, top to bottom, front to back, was was excellent. I learned so much. I was set up for success. I was ready to go. I was educated. Uh, all of that. Uh, it, our our feathers in the cap of the military to say, you know, we need the next generation to to come up and serve, especially in in the all all volunteer force. Um, Another thought I had here also is at what point from from your point of like when you transitioned out, you had five days to get ready and now you got about a year. Uh, at what point did the Army realize and even prior to your transition in the decades, 80s, 70s, 60s, like at what point did the Army at least specifically say like we need to really start helping uh, our, our servicemen and women in this transition and let's expand that particular uh, that curriculum? Uh, so to put a historical lens on it, <laughs> there's a real interesting dynamic that has occurred uh, amongst the, I'll call it military generations. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I get into these conversations with uh, veterans as we sit down and kibitz in, in various environments. But but one of the interesting points is, you know, think about our, our Vietnam generation. Mm -hmm. uh, when they got out, when they came home, uh, you know, and they're plenty of, of movies that, that document their experience. It was not a positive one, to say the least. Right. Uh, that said, however, when they were looking for employment, and, and again, I, I focus all my work efforts, uh, and we can talk about the books and uh, my mm -hmm. new day job, as it were, uh, all focused on employment. Uh, I, I think it's silver bullet for a number of reasons. But when you think about the, the Vietnam generation, uh, from an employment standpoint, the, the individuals running the corporate world in terms of preponderance of, of veteran experience that they had at the time was a lot of the world war ii veterans yeah. and at that point in time in our nation's history all probably 99 percent of them men if not more uh and i, I believe statistics just shy of 50 percent had military experience at that mm -hmm. point in time call it mid to late 70s so if you were again coming out of vietnam coming home looking for work you had a awful experience from a societal standpoint and acceptance but you had leadership in the corporate world those that controlled uh, the available jobs uh, whereby you could land and begin to facilitate a career for yourself mm -hmm. that script has has flipped quite a bit since then so now i mean talk post 9-11 uh, the cohort that uh, we're experiencing today, where, you know, you get a lot of the the parades and the welcome homes and thank you for your service. There's a ton of that. And I don't think any any of us would 
want to you know give that back. But what has happened in the interim is the preponderance of executives in the uh, the corporate world that have military experience has shrunk by well over ninety yeah. percent. The percentage, yeah. if we believe what the Wall Street Journal tells us, the percentage of uh, corporate leaders that have any military experience is on the order of two and a half percent and shrinking. Uh, and that number will continue to shrink in the coming decades. So again, so contrast the Vietnam experience with the post 9-11 experience. You, you get a lot of attaboys, pats on the back, um, all, all great. But at the end of the day, where the rubber hits the road, when you really need a job and you're sitting across the table from someone trying to explain who you are, what you've done, what you can do, mm-hmm. that person sitting on the other side of the desk, 97.5% chance has no idea. Who you are what you've done what you can't do there's a real uh barrier there in translation and we can talk civil divide what that actually represents but uh mm-hmm. that's the big barrier that folks have today and and to get to, to your question wrong uh, with tap I, I think as that evolution began to take place you know again i i left in the active in the, the mid 90s uh you know post uh first gulf war uh the 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 clinton drawdown years and i think that was about the point in time where that societal shift uh in terms of veteran experience leading corporations began to take place and i I, i'd like to think that you know the army leadership or dod leadership uh writ large began to to recognize that Uh, but but certainly even if that weren't the case Certainly, fast forward to, to 2012, where unemployment rates for veterans are, you know, well north of 12 percent, percent, uh, you know, and, and suicide rates are going through the roof. That yeah. something I, you know, t- completely had to be done to address that. And that, you know, they poured a lot of rocket fuel on the fire at that point in time just to try to tamp some of that down. Mm-hmm. But again, much more that can be done. So let's get into uh, mission transition. The book. Um, I'd love for you to ch- chat about uh, sort of the genesis of that book and how it, it has grown to to where you're at now when you're coaching individuals and and how how who you find how you're able to do that. So to to tell the mission transition story, we get into that. I, I think it needs some some context just in mm-hmm. terms of how I pivoted my my life's mission, if you will, uh, over the past five to ten years. Uh, I, I, my kind of personal purpose and focus these days is eliminating the civil military divide. And I, I've got all sorts of statistics we can walk through slideware that, that calls it all out. Happy to uh, at any point, if you'd like to pull any up, uh, again, to our audience, if you're listening, pop over to the YouTube side and uh, any slides that pull up, uh, you'll be able to see them on screen. But uh, happy to, Matt, whenever, you, whenever you'd like. Okay. Yeah, the civil military divide is definitely something that we're passionate about here with the Scuttlebutt and VBC. It's kind of part part and parcel to our mission. Uh, with VBC of getting veterans together with the public, sharing stories. Um, a lot of it is about educating, uh, educating the public about what uh, what military life is like. Uh, seeing as how, as you, as you you know, as you clearly know, like the even the corporate structure, uh, a lot of those leaders are not they don't have military experience. Um, and we know that less less than one half of one percent of people serve now, so way down from fifty percent, if not more. Very true. Very true. All right. So civil military divide. Uh, again, all context to we'll talk about mission transition, but it's, it's guiding a lot of the work that I do these days. So first, let's define what we mean when we say this. 
trying to get my computer to work here. So it, it's a it's a widening divide. You know, I mentioned some of the statistics before between the nation and those who serve her, characterized by issues among multiple dimensions, driven by uh, many root causes, uh, and exacerbated, frankly, by attitudes, opposing attitude from both the public and the military. But at the end of the day, what this drives is a fundamental disconnect around expectations of what employers have of veterans and, and vice versa. So I'm, I'm a visual person. Let, let me try to illustrate uh, this point with some statistics. Uh, first, start with the fact that veterans make up less than half of the percentage of the population they did a generation ago. Uh, it, it's as simple. If you look at the graph on the left, where the U.S. population continues to grow onward and upward, the population of uh, the, the veteran has made somewhat level and has begun to decline, and active military has remained somewhat in, in decline ever so slightly. All of that leads to the chart. In the bottom right there, where you see the arrow heading down, and that trend will further continue. But all of that uh, in total leads to a lack of familiarity, a lack of understanding between military and veterans and, and those that haven't served. Uh, elected veteran leadership is at an historic low. Uh, you start to see, and you see it start to level off at the bottom. Uh, so there's, there's some veterans, and I know there are moves afoot. Uh, such that we get more military representation in the House and Senate at, at the U.S. federal level. Uh, but the, the fact remains that uh, representation at the nation's highest level is not uh, where it once was. Uh, you pointed out uh, the fact that less than one half of one percent hasn't served in any time post 9-11. Again, lack of familiarity, lack of understanding takes us further apart. Look at, uh, again, the fact that there are large numbers of veterans entering a workforce whose leaders no longer include them. You heard heard me throw out the, the stat earlier. I'll, I'll mention it here again. But whether you look at the, the chart in the upper left or the bottom right, the fact of the matter is if you assume 65 is retirement age, half of the veterans in U.S. are beyond retirement age. And there's the statistic I was mentioning there where Wall Street Journal so over 90% drop of uh, you know the, the C-suite that had any military experience, and they put that percentage to now be uh, 2.5%. Uh, even if you include all board members of the S&P 500, that percentage is still less than 5%. So again, lack of familiarity, lack of understanding, uh, driving a wedge in this case into employment opportunities. Um, let's look <laughs> simply where people live. So the two graphs on the right side represent heat maps, the top one being the density of the U.S. population, the bottom being the density of the, the veteran population. If you overlay them, there's good portions where the maps don't overlap. And so again, leads to a lack of familiarity, lack of understanding, whereby you know 84% of post-9-11 vets say the public doesn't understand the problems they face. And 76% of those that served prior to 9-11 uh, agree. Again, lack of familiarity, lack of understanding. Today, post-OIF, OEF, we've got a veteran population that's growing, but without a safety net. You know, there's 200,000 coming out every year. Although they're now enabling a 401k, 70% of them are still going to transition short of retirement without a pension. And half of them say that they're not prepared for the transition. So, what does this all get you? This gets you a nation where there's more veterans entering the, the nation, but whose elected leaders don't represent them, whose corporate leaders don't include them, whose population doesn't look like them or live nearby them, whose employers don't understand them, and for which they're unprepared. Employers, while they have incentives, their work tax credits and other things, 
they typically don't have effective programs. And my, my second book speaks to this. 80% of organizations today do not have veteran-specific hiring programs. Huge opportunity, huge gap we got to fill. Uh, employers also face the challenge in justifying putting these programs in place for an ever-shrinking minority of their workforce. Again, citing the, the lowering statistics we just looked at and assuming you're a for-profit business, constantly in the face of shrinking budgets. Again, this gap drives many challenges given the lack of familiarity and understanding. Here's the net impact. More than half of post-9-11 vets are going to be unemployed on average of 22 weeks. Almost two-thirds of them are not in their chosen career fields, and they only spend about a year and a half in those first jobs, from which they job hop and job hop and job hop, such that even by their sixth post-military job, half of them are still not in their preferred career field. Wow. And by the way, to add insult to injury, you know, the, the suicide rate is more than doubled and uh, over a decade post 9-11. So uh, let me let me stop the, the show there uh, just in terms of setting the scene mm -hmm. for how I'm trying to address that. So if that's the civil military divide, if we accept the studies, accept the, the statistics, what do we do about it? Uh, well, mm -hmm. I'll answer that just from my own standpoint. Uh, what I've chosen to do about it is address it on three fronts. Uh, the first of which is, and you, you mentioned the book, you see it over my shoulder. There, there it is. You see all the stickers, most awarded book of its kind, uh, now an Amazon bestseller. Uh, it is a practical guide to help our service members find full employment and optimal career fields. Why is that important? We, we talked about it from a, a broad national standpoint, but from an individual veteran standpoint, if a veteran can find full employment and optimal career field, again, I, I cite studies here. This isn't me riffing. And uh, mm -hmm. by the way, I got a D in plebe English at West Point. I probably shouldn't be the one writing books, but I, they will not fault me on not having done my homework. So you, that's why you hear me spout a lot of statistics. Uh, if veterans find full employment following, uh, find full employment in an optimal career field following their time in service, they will more than double their career earnings rate of retention and job satisfaction. It's incredibly, incredibly important. And so that's what the, the book is trying to enable and help them avoid those false starts, that all of that job hopping that tends to go on typically uh, with our transitioning veterans. They find a job just to have a job, a revenue stream to backfill the one that they're just leaving, uh, where again, if they took the time to do diligence up front, I recommend 24 months uh, to do the self-reflection uh, that it's going to require, find out who they are and who they want to be when they get out, they will land far better uh, than they they will uh, had they not done otherwise. But anyway, mission transition writ large is just the military side of the civ mill divide. Hmm. I have another book coming out this summer. It's called The Value of Hiring Veterans. It's a practical guide for organizational leaders, be they corporate, academic, governmental, nonprofit. Uh, and again, I'll cite the statistic. This is from comes from Corn Ferry. 80% of organizations do not have veteran-specific hiring programs. And again, tons of reasons why that's good. And frankly, I, as much as I want to wave the flag, let's put all the patriotic reasons to the side. Doing so is good business. If you start simply with the veteran community, uh, you've got something on the order of uh, my numbers may slightly be off, but call it 37 million people that comprise the, the veteran community, be they service members, veterans, mill spouses, et cetera, and, and annually wield a buying power of $1.2 trillion in goods and services. So if, if you as a business uh, 
will ingratiate yourself to this military community, you can reap significant financial benefits. Hmm. I cited the statistic around um, veterans having good outcome and helping recruitment downrange. Another interesting statistic is if veterans don't find employment coming out of the service, guess who pays the unemployment compensation? It's the Department of Defense. And that those funds come directly out of DOD's operating budget which takes directly away from the funds that would otherwise be spent training the troops and preparing them to fight and win the nation's wars. Again, if we if we would be long-term thinking about this, we would be making different decisions about how we treat folks on their way out the door. So th that's, that's the second book. But even if you do those two things, there is still, from an employment standpoint, a lack of what I call a warm handoff from an individual's last duty station and the community in the which they settle. And that's where I've pivoted my, my day job. I retired from uh, my role at Deloitte over a year ago. Uh, I'm now president of a little startup called PeerPost. And what we do is we match the supply and demand of the nation's talent. Uh, we, we do have a specific focus on veterans. Everyone, our executive staff is an, an army vet. What we did, we, it, we took five years to build what is today the largest proprietary database of translated competencies and skills. We spent five years translating all military services. There are 35,000 roles that comprise everyone that works in our, our military today. Translated all of those to the underlying competencies and skills. We then went on to the balance of the economy contained in ONET, 70,000 plus roles, translated those. Mm. Overlaid human skills, soft skills, those skills that veterans are prized for and upon which, frankly, everyone is hired and promoted. Uh, and normalized all of that to the National Labor Exchange, the largest, most accurate job board in the country. This enables you, anyone, military, civilian, what have you, you can go onto our platform, uh, complete what we call a passport. It's online. It's for free, for life. You can complete it in 15 minutes. It'll instantly translate what you've done over the course of your career, be it military, civilian, and instantly match you with employment opportunities in the U.S. economy for which you're a match based on your translated, your underlying competencies and skills. No one can match on that level. Uh, no one can can do what we can do. And again, it's it's free for everyone for life. Uh, go to peerpost.co and knock yourself out. I was going to say, what is the website? And I'll make sure to put that into the description here. Uh, if you are watching or listening, check out the description of this episode for that link. Um, a, a term that you brought up, uh, that I want to uh, just define a little bit further is is what is a veteran specific hiring program, um, and is that it, it? I'm guessing it correlates to this idea of translating what uh, uh, an an individual did in the military to what they can do in the civilian sector. Sure. So, organizations at at any point in time and and their uh, the evolution of of their organizations they will sometimes target. Uh, for a short period of time or other times for a, a long period of time, certain subsets of the population. Mm -hmm. And so, and I'll cite some of the, the case studies that uh, were uh, thankfully contributors to my second book of examples of organizations that are doing it well. So uh, Walmart is an organization that has had, uh, um, I'm, I'm going to, uh, stretch a few brain cells here to recall when they actually initiated this, but it was prior to 2012. So they've been at this well over a decade and where they've, they've established an initiative sponsored at the highest levels of their organization. 
they've staffed it with, it started with uh, Brigadier General retired Gary Prophet, so a very senior uh, member, uh, both from the military and from the corporate world. Uh, they, they've staffed it with individuals that work for, used to work for, he's since rotated out of the role, but used to work for General Profit. Uh, they have a curriculum that they've established that helps uh, train both people inside their organization, talent acquisition individuals, people do the recruiting, the interviewing, what have you. Mm -hmm. So they understand how to interface with veterans. They have a curriculum to onboard those veterans coming in. So they understand all the nuances of the Walmart culture, all of their SOPs, things specific to their role. Uh, they have a mentoring program uh, whereby they assign those veterans coming in, uh, an individual that helps shepherd them over their initial months uh, within the organization. And uh, so that when I say program, that's kind of what I'm I'm talking about. It, okay. A concerted effort that that's funded, that's dedicated, and is coupled with a mentoring program that enables that successful recruitment, uh, onboarding, and thriving once in the organization of that mm -hmm. former service member. All right, so getting back to, to mission transition a bit, uh, what is a service member looking at when they pick up this book? How is it going to help them uh, make these decisions, you know, assist them in that in this transition into the civilian world? And and uh, are you available as a coach to sort of work them through with the book, or how does that work out? Uh, I'll answer the, the latter question first. I, I am, but I've tried to make myself... Uh, uh, useless, maybe, if that's the right term, <laughs> uh, uh, or maybe the better way to say it, I've, I've tried to scale myself. And, and how so, if you go out on, on my website, MatthewJLewis.com, I've recorded uh, 21 video courses, are all out there for free, mm -hmm. uh, for you forever, that it, it contain both the, the content from my book, as well as all of the resources. That's the other point I would highlight on my website. There's tons of resource, literally more than a quarter of the original book is out there, yours for free for life. So have at it. It's uh, very kind the, of you. It's very kind of you, Matt, to, to make that all available right off the bat. Well, again, it's it's a purpose-driven mission. True. And, you know, others, uh, in spite of the fact it's in their long-term interest to do so, uh, aren't mean to need, someone has to. Uh, this is the the spark. I mean, we, we kind of glossed over this earlier, but it, you, you had intimated, you know, what, what was the spark that, that set this off? Just a quick tangent on that. So I, I kind of made reference to you know, this process I was using to help individuals eventually getting feedback that I needed to scale it. But what really uh, triggered the thought, again, fast forward decades now, and I'll go back almost uh, 10 years from where we sit here today, you know, where I had classmates, you know, blood brothers and sisters uh, leaving the service after decades of service, them and their families in service to the country, uh, all sorts of, of combat experiences, what have you. And still, in spite of uh, the continued efforts, and, uh, you know, I, I encourage more of that again, uh, but they're, they're still largely left funding for themselves. That was the point where uh, it, it was the spark that said, all right, this stops here. Yeah. Uh, someone needs to do something. I'm finally going to listen to the feedback that I'd, I'd been getting. Um, so that's was the the genesis of the book. Mm -hmm. uh, back to the book itself. A again, the, the main purpose is to help individuals find full employment, optimal career fields, avoid false starts, following time on active duty. I purposely structured the book 
in a way that our service members would implicitly take to it. They were trained in the service at, at an eighth grade level and in a manner that is crawl, walk, run, step one, two, three. And so I structured the book exactly that way with illustrations as we go uh, from individuals that have already walked the path. Um, and I, I wanted to make sure that those voices were from a very diverse background. Uh, and by diverse, I mean uh, men, women, people of color, those shorter in tenure, longer in tenure, retirees, non-retirees, all the services, uh, et cetera. So I, I, I purposely set out with a, a goal to try to do that. I, I think I've succeeded. I've gotten some good feedback on that. Uh, but, you know, throughout, so, you know, read a chapter, do a chapter. Within the chapter, there are a number of exercises, again, as part of the, the crawl, walk, run, you know, figure this out, then go do this. Uh, and little uh, inserts, I call them uh, troops in the trenches, uh, little call outs from folks that have been down the path that kind of inject their own thought, their own point of view. Uh, so that's just not uh, a unilateral uh, fire hose, if you will. Right. Uh, and the people that uh, start to work through this, uh, how long does the process take? And do you feel like the book really gives them start to finish uh you know, this is everything you need right here. Or should they should they also use the book in tangent with uh, with what's on the website and try to like gather as much of that as possible to really give them a full uh, a, a full book of knowledge on what they are what's what to expect. Yeah, I, it's it's definitely the book and the website. But I would encourage them. And again, all of these references are listed on the website as well. The bibliography that I pull from. I also list additional reading within every chapter on the website. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, again, I'm I'm not the the font of all knowledge here. I've I've pulled from best of breed stuff uh, from anywhere it existed out there. So I'd I'd like to think it it represents uh, the best of the best. But it, it, there are many subjects in each chapter that require additional depth. Uh, but I provide the reference. Uh, or the website, whatever the case may be, uh, for folks to take advantage of that. So I'd, I'd call it, between the book and my website, a great starting point. It'll get you X percent of the way there, call it three, three quarters, 80%, whatever it is. But to get you over the, the goal line, the, the 100%, as it were, it's going to require some additional thought in, in one of those areas. But I'd like to think I've, I've at least identified what those appropriate resources are so that you can follow those breadcrumbs and go down that rabbit hole as the case may be. The other fact of the yeah, matter is, you know, there there's such a thing uh, as word limits on books. So HarperCollins, my publisher, there, there's a reason why there's over a quarter of the manuscript on my website for free because HarperCollins said I could I had to keep it to 70,000 words. So <laughs> I said, my retort was, that's fine. Just know that the balance of this is going on my website and everybody's going to get it for free because, yeah. uh, uh, which was my way to try to influence them because uh, for those that haven't written a book, the publishing world is about nothing but money. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, but also fortunately in, in a lot of ways. Um, so it's a, it, is the book a living document uh, in the sense of will there be a second, third, fourth edition? Because as things sort of continue to grow with the TAP program and, and transition assistance in the military, things like that, uh, it seems like the book will have to grow with that too in a way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
I'd like to think so. I think that's an ongoing conversation that I'll need to have with with my publisher. Uh, let, let me point to a couple of ongoing projects that will keep it um, a, a living document, at least for the foreseeable future. Uh, one, I've gotten feedback since the book has come out that uh, to turn it into a workbook of sorts, hmm. meaning, hey, this is great. Uh, can you just kind of point me or condense it down to what are the critical few exercises I, I need to do? Uh, again, much like uh, Dick Bowles did with What Color Is Your Parachute, he has an accompanying workbook. So uh, somewhat paralleling what what he did with the exercises contained in in, in my book. So that's uh, one project I'm working with HarperCollins on. Uh, who knows when that'll see the light of day. Uh, the other interesting thing that has come about, uh, you know, I always thought of the, the process for which I advocate in the book as being somewhat generic. It's obviously specific to veterans, uh, but taken holistically, it could really apply to, to anyone looking to pivot their career or uh, a job change of sorts. Um, and uh, oddly enough, other countries have caught up on that. So specifically, I've been working with a professor from University of Edinburgh in the UK uh, to create a version of the book for application in the UK and their military. Oh, so I'm, I'm actively working to... Uh, to do the translation, uh, it's more than just changing the the, the S's to the Z's, and you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> those. It, it's a bit more complicated than that, but yeah. that's an ongoing project as well that'll enable me to to revisit some things. I would like to think that, um, it, given its sales, it, it has sold out of all uh, hardback from the initial print run. It's now in paperback. Mm -hmm. But why that's important is because the, the AFI's retail. Uh, system only stocks paperbacks, and that's why it was not available as a hardback version in AP's channels until earlier this year, uh, which is a, a, another point of frustration for mine. But it, it is there now. If it's not on your shelf, you can at least order it online through AP's channels, as well as, you know, frankly, anywhere else books are sold. Um, and do you feel like the book uh, helps that sieve mill divide in the sense of? yes, their transition coming back will be uh, a lighter load. It'll be easier. They'll be more educated. Um, and, and the book sort of uh, gives the veteran, does does it give the veteran um, the sort of the motivation to, to help this civ mill divide as they transition back to the civilian world? Well, hopefully they uh, are able to glean some motivation by, again, this all assumes that they, they do it and implement the uh, the, the exercises and, and glean from the, the lessons learned contained therein. If they do that, yes, I think it, it helps get them halfway there. Uh, but again, they need to be met halfway by uh, those on the other side of the divide, which is the whole purpose for the second book. Right. Um, uh, so in, in, in short, yes. That sort of answers the second question I had, which is just more of a, a, a side question about the civil divide is how much responsibility is it on the veteran uh, to educate the public about the military experience as well as the civilian to educate themselves about the military experience. I think, again, I'll cite the statistics from uh, earlier in, in the podcast. Uh, I think veterans, if I were a service member coming out today, I would assume it's on me uh, to, to, to do that translation. Now, mm -hmm. again, I'll uh, reference my the peer post passport they go out there we've done the work for you we, we we will translate your experience into civilian ready application into words that 
uh, perspective hiring manager would would understand. Mm -hmm. uh, but you have to be the one to, uh, and uh, let me reflect on culture. There's one of the the later chapters in the book is devoted to culture, and I cited almost a couple dozen uh, different cultural dimensions that uh, you know. Again, gee, I, I, one of the reasons I wrote the book is I, or the way in which I wrote the book was I, I wanted to have something that I wish I would have had, you know, when, when I left Act Duty 96. One of those lessons I've learned in the ensuing years is the, the value of culture and how that's defined and uh, experienced within organizations. And so there's a couple of different cultural dimensions, uh, again, assuming that the veterans uh, reads, digest this, they at least walk in uh, knowing potentially what they're going to experience. It's also one of the more difficult things to get a pulse on before you enter the organization, but I, I talk them through, you know, exercises and tactics about how to try to get a beat on that. Uh, but ultimately, it's you're not going to fully experience and appreciate it until you're actually, you know, on the ground in the door, working in that environment. And that's a lot of responsibility. Just you know, speaking from personal opinion here, I think it's a lot of sure. responsibility on the veteran who's coming out, who's sure. not only trying to change their entire life, leave a yep. culture that they were in, uh, you know involved in their their blood brothers and sisters right. come back into the civilian world which is very different but then also feel a responsibility to educate the civilians about what that military experience is like and yeah. a lot of them may not have that extra that extra energy they might be dealing with family you know moving them figuring out the new community uh sure. we've talked to several veterans on the podcast who have that sort of extra passion to continue serving we've uh you know hope that veterans will continue to serve their communities in which they come into because veteran leadership is so needed, um, right. not only for their experience, uh, but for the education and, and value that they bring to that community. Um, right. it, it's, I, I just want to highlight that, but that, that's a, yeah. a very large responsibility for the veterans who are coming out nowadays. You're right. And uh, let me say two things in response to that. Um, one of which is take heart because you're you're not alone in in going through this. And yes, while I think ultimately at you know, that responsibility rests on your shoulders, there are tons of what I'll call combat multipliers to to help you along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, I mentioned peer post which I think helps down what is tradition breaks down what has traditionally been a big barrier. Uh, you know, call upon your tribe. You are not the only person that has gone through this. There are literally hundreds of thousands of those that have gone before you. And have had good, bad, and indifferent experiences. You know, uh, pull on them, lean on them, glean from those things. There's guides. Again, I'll I'll point to my book, and there's there's a lot written in this space. Uh, you know, if my book doesn't resonate with you, there's dozens of others out there. Pick up one that's going to resonate with you, and, and and see that through. There are literally tens of thousands of veteran service organizations that stand ready to support you. Um, I'll point to one type of, I'll say, business model uh, that is meant to help you uh, see your way and maneuver what Emerald Mullen, uh, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, called the Sea of Goodwill. That mm -hmm. comprises these 45,000 veteran service organizations, lots of good intent, lots of goodwill, lots of funding. But if I'm a veteran coming into a community, and I'll cite my own community here in greater Cincinnati, where there's something approaching 2,000 of those organizations that have the word veteran or vision or mission statement, I'm not going to go knock on 2,000 doors, nor, nor am I going to respond to 2,000 knocks on my door. What I will do 
is report to a, a single location. Think of your in-processing center on your base or post. I will give them an inventory of what my needs are, be they education, employment, financing, housing, you name it, mm -hmm. and let them go on my behalf, reach out to the subset of that 2000 uh, organization population, pull in those services, providing to me at a point time place where I need them. That's what I will do. And who does that today is what I call uh, veteran collaboratives. Uh, this is, again, I'll use the term business model, uh, almost all of whom are nonprofits. Uh, they exist in many of the large communities around the country, but they are not uh, universally scaled throughout the country. I'm a huge advocate, and I was just in Chicago last week with uh, a number of large national nonprofits to have a discussion as to how we might further scale uh, those that are uh, operating functionally today. Mm -hmm. So if if I were a service member coming out, um, I would, one of the first things I would look for uh, b b besides, uh, you know, the employment related stuff, my book, the Pure Post website, et cetera, I would look for a veteran collaborative in your community. Uh, check out the, the local chamber where you're at. Uh, I've got a list of them on my website. So check that out. I try to keep that updated. Uh, but lean on them and they will help you and your family see through a lot of the logistics and hassles and things that add a ton of stress to you and your family as part of coming out. Um, you know, it, with suicide being the the presence that it is, it may just save a life. True. And and I'll I'll take a second to also highlight that the VBC, though we are a storytelling organization, the number of times that somebody comes to us and says, I need help with xyz and we sort of blast that out to all of our veterans in in our organization uh there's somebody always johnny on the spot who can help them um it's a very open organization and though we are situated here mainly in the pittsburgh region uh as we continue to develop a, a nationwide presence mainly online um we have found that uh more veterans even across the country who have connected with us are willing to help people uh so it's it's a, a very I think welcoming and supportive environment. Um, uh, speaking to your point, absolutely. You should take part, uh, take advantage of your tribe, mm -hmm. and VBC is part of that tribe. Is going to welcome you. They're, your peers, they, they've all served. They've all gone through what you're going through now. They know of what they speak, and they can help you and help get you and your family connected. So please take advantage. I know that we've, I feel like we've only really scratched the surface in our, in our time together today, Matt. Um, but I, 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 and maybe we can set up a part two of this conversation to maybe dive like in further and really get into the weeds of, of uh, the Please. book. Um, but I, I want to leave you with the final word here of, of uh, where can they get the book and, uh, and why should they pick it up? Uh, so Mission Transition is published by HarperCollins. So I, I, I like to say you can, it's available anywhere books are sold. Um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, pick your retail space. As I mentioned, now available via AFES channels as well. Uh, so please pick it up. I would suggest well in advance uh, of the time you depart the service. Again, I advocate for 24 months. People wearing uniform think you're crazy, but it literally takes that long to think through who you. Well, they're are like 22, 24, 25 years old. They're like, I got right. the rest of my life to do whatever I want. Like two years from now, that's that's an eternity away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's literally all you spent your adult life doing and you're trying to right. turn the page on all of that. So it's, totally. it's a high, high mountain to climb. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the first book. Next book called The Value of Hiring Veterans. It'll come out. Uh, official press date is 
1st of September, 2023. That likewise will be available anywhere books are sold. Uh, you'll start to see uh, splashes in, in media around the March timeframe uh, for uh, pre-order sales and whatnot. Excellent. Uh, Matt, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I hope that uh, anybody listening, please check out all the links that we will have in the description to go to Matt's website um, or, or check out the resources that Matt has available. Um, this is a really interesting, every every season of the Scuttlebutt, we seem to, to dabble in a particular theme. And I feel like season seven's themes kind of became transitioning out of the military as many of my guests this this season in particular have been talking about where do, where do I go after I'm done serving? How do I continue to serve? Um, what do I do whenever I'm, you know, looking to transition out? Uh, it, it's interesting how sort of these themes sort of wrap themselves into each season. But I'm, I'm so glad that we got to highlight your book, your, your service, um, hear a bit of your story. Um, and like I said, I hope that we can welcome, welcome you back, especially when the next book comes out to talk a bit more about the other side, the sieve of the sieve mill divide. My pleasure, Sean. Again, thanks for having me. It's all about continuing to serve, regardless of the uniform you're wearing. Mm -hmm. And for me, that, that personal passion and uh, my project is is helping our service members that have you know signed a blank check uh, on behalf of themselves and their families to the to the nation. So we we owe them that much, uh, as uh, President Roosevelt once said a long time ago. And uh, to our audience, please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. And you can always email me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org if you have any questions about this episode or if you have any suggestions for future episodes. I'm always open to hearing it. And as an FYI, my wife and I are expecting at the beginning of the year, so there'll be a bit of a hiatus for the scuttlebutt. Um, but we will be back with all new episodes of the scuttlebutt all through next year. Um, and hopefully, Matt will have you a part of it. Thank you so much for joining us and for spending the time with us today. Thank you. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank both of our sponsors, the first being DND Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage. They began as a small hauling and used auto parts operation in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1970s, but they've grown into a full-service metal recycling company with two locations, Lawrenceville and Tarentum. D&D accepts all types of metal, both ferrous and non-ferrous, that may be generated by industrial manufacturing, construction and demolition, small commercial entities, as well as individual customers. They have a wide variety of material handling equipment and are capable of managing any type of job in a timely and efficient manner. You can contact them for quotes and availability at D&D, &D, that's D&D &D Auto Salvage. Dot com. Uh, thank you so much to D&D. &D. Uh, they've been a sponsor for quite some time, and we really appreciate their support. Uh, the second being Tobacco-Free Adagio Health. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and to getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health. So they want people to quit and they have classes and nicotine replacement therapy and a popular quit line, which is the easiest number to remember ever, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. Finally, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all of what Tobacco-Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org, or you can watch our recent episode with Tobacco-Free Adagio Health on the Scuttlebutt, uh, where they talk about a lot of the programs that they offer for those who are looking to quit. Thank you to both of our sponsors for their continued support of the Scuttlebutt podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks.